everybody. Welcome to 2ZQ Hot Takes, where we discuss issues both big and small. I am your host, the very handsome Tim Kirk, and this time I'll be talking about 8th Avenue heading uptown from 23rd Street, the craziest stretch in Chelsea, and a place with an absolutely turbulent, volatile, and essential historic past. From BrickUnderground.com Lamartine Place disappeared from Manhattan street directories in 1898. But the block that once carried that name has ignited the passions of New Yorkers for over 150 years, from abolitionists to rioters to, of late, preservationists. The site of historic pre-Civil War events, a Civil War riot, and now a 21st century real estate battle, the Lamartine Place Historic District just 12 houses on the north side of 29th Street between 8th and 9th Avenues has an amazing story to tell. The cast of characters includes some of the city's most ardent abolitionists, Isaac Hopper, Isaac's daughters Abigail, and her husband James, who had a home on the block. The Hopper-Gibbons family was in the thick of the abolitionist struggle. Their home was a documented stop on the Underground Railroad which is one of the reasons they were prime targets of the mob that terrorized New York during the horrendous draft riots of 1863. Little known facts about this mini-neighborhood. The developers of Lamartine Place thought the name would add a little je ne sais quoi. Developers William Torrey and Cyrus Mason built their first project in Chelsea in 1845. As I had mentioned before in a previous podcast about Chelsea, it was a long row of 81 townhouses for wealthy businessmen called London Terrace that extended from 23rd to 24th Street between 9th and 10th Avenues. They were torn down to make room for the huge London Terrace apartment building complex that stands there now. A year later, in 1846, Tari and Mason bought all the land on 29th Street between 8th and 9th Avenues, again, Their plan was to attract the rich and famous. They chose two ways to do that. One was to create a park that ran between 28th and 29th on the eastern half of the block facing the houses. Another was to give the block its own name, something that would set it apart from the banal-sounding number names of the Manhattan grid. They dubbed West 29th Street Lamartine Place. In a column in the New York Times, architectural historian Christopher Gray wrote that it was likely named for Alphonse de Lamartine, a popular 19th century French poet and politician identified with liberal and anti-slavery causes. Number 17 Lamartine Place, now 339 West 29th Street, was a stop on the Underground Railroad. James Sloan Gibbons and his wife, Abby Hopper Gibbons first moved into 17 Lamartine Place and then next door to 18. The two were Quakers and abolitionists. She was the daughter of Isaac Hopper, who sheltered escaped slaves in his Philadelphia home. In a review of a book on Isaac Hopper, Frederick Douglass wrote about the senior Hopper. He was the first white man I saw when escaping slavery who led me to doubt the, till then, well-established conviction that no white man could possibly possess a disinterested regard for the despised black man. 
their home became an underground railroad site. The house of Mrs. Gibbons was a great resort of abolitionists and extreme anti-slavery people from all parts of the land, as it was one of the stations of the Underground Railroad by which fugitive slaves found their way from the South to Canada, reads a letter written before the Civil War by neighbor and friend Joseph Choate, discovered by Fern Luskin, a professor of art and architectural history at LaGuardia Community College. When Abraham Lincoln called for 300,000 soldiers to join the Union Army in 1862, James Gibbons, an avid Republican and Lincoln supporter, wrote a poem, 300,000 More, that became a popular patriotic song. The draft riots of 1863 rocked Lamartine Place in the 1860s. The draft riot of 1863, one of the most horrific episodes in New York City's history, brought four days of looting, burning, and unspeakable violence to the city. The riot broke out just days after the federal government instituted the Draft Act, the first time that military service was declared compulsory in the U.S. According to Off the Grid, the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation's blog, the draft riots reflected the extreme racial and class tensions exacerbated by the Civil War. Working-class men were in direct competition for scarce jobs with African Americans, and the Emancipation Proclamation further tied the war to the cause of slavery. These tensions were exacerbated by the fact that the wealthy could buy their way out of the draft with a $300 payment. During the riot, the mob set out to destroy the property of wealthy New Yorkers and anyone known to be supporters of Lincoln's Republican Party. It's no surprise, then, that the Hopper Gibbons home became a target. On the afternoon of the third day of the riots, sensing danger, Abby and James' daughters Julia and Lucy, along with one of their cousins, moved some of their belongings to the attic of their uncle Samuel Brown's home nearby at 347 Lamartine Place, which I don't think is correct because 347 will be West 29th Street, carrying them over the rooftops, which, according to a Landmarks Preservation Commission report, were uniformly flat and even. Rioters attacked that home later that afternoon, and when neighbor Joseph Choate saw smoke coming from their house, he went in to find the girls. Per the report, he located them at their uncle's house, had led them over the rooftops down into number 355, and then out to a carriage that was waiting on the corner of 9th Avenue that took them safely to West 21st Street. The Gibbons received $8,500 from the city to rebuild their home, and in 1866, when their claim with the Humboldt Fire Insurance Company was settled, they sold the house and moved to a rental on West 33rd Street. The property at number 355, where the Gibbons girls made their final exit, was the Hebrew Orphan Asylum. In 1860, the Hebrew Orphan Society moved into the four-story brick house that is now number 355. Orphan asylums were common institutions throughout the city at that time, and this one was set up to house 30 orphans and half-orphans while a more permanent site was being built on the Upper East Side, according to the book The Luckiest Orphans, A History of the Hebrew Orphan Asylum of New York. Today there's still drama and a house on the market too. The present owner of 339 West 29th Street, Tony Mamounis, began to build a rooftop addition on top of the Hopper Gibbons home about 10 years ago, and this comes from some time ago. 
This infuriated neighborhood activists who organized a group called the Friends of Hopper Gibbons Underground Railroad Site and Lamartine Place Historic District through the efforts of the Friends Group and with the help of a number of local elected officials, the Landmarks Preservation Committee designated the house as part of the broader Lamartine Place Historic District in 2009. The group was hoping that would settle the problem of the rooftop addition. It didn't, and the fight continues, or continued. As Julie Finch, co-chair of the group along with Fern Luskin, explains, the present legal status of the fifth floor is that its permit is, was invalid and must come down. But it hasn't in spite of the fact that the group has won all our appeals at boards of standards and appeals and two courts. The illegal secretively built fifth floor edition is still there as its scaffolding. And this is quite some time ago. So now what? When asked what happens to the structure that remains in place on top of the building, a spokesperson for the Department of Buildings told us, them, in an email that it is the responsibility of a property owner to ensure their building is maintained in a safe and code-compliant manner at all times. The failure to do so can result in violations, as was the case at this site where they performed work outside the scope of the approved plans. And if the conditions are deemed hazardous to the public, the DOB can issue an emergency declaration calling in the city's contractors at the expense of the owner. But the existing structure has not been determined to pose an immediate threat to public safety. If you'd like to live two doors down from the Hopper Gibbons home and in a much less controversial property, it will cost you $7.995 million to buy 343 West 29th Street, complete with an owner's duplex with three bedrooms, two and a half baths, and a bi-level backyard space. The building has three other two-bedroom apartments that rent at free market rates. And according to the New York Post, Ellen Burstyn considered renting the 2,400-square-foot duplex in 2013 when the rent was $11,000. Now, from Daytonian in Manhattan. Saloon to Mission to Nightclub. Number 290, 8th Avenue. Daytonian Manhattan writes about the stories behind the buildings, statues, and other points of interest that make Manhattan fascinating. Now, this is from July of 2011. Saloon to Mission to Nightclub. Number 290, 8th Avenue. When exactly the broad red brick federal-style building at 290, 8th Avenue was converted to accommodate a store or saloon on its first floor is uncertain. However, the unassuming building has been there since around 1895. After the Civil War in 1868, just two blocks to the south at 23rd Street and 8th Avenue stood the Grand Opera House, anchoring the growing entertainment district that stretched to 5th Avenue and Madison Square Park. It was a vibrant, bustling neighborhood. Painter John H. Schmidt was living next door at 292 on July 12, 1871, when Irish protesters, known as the Orangemen, began a parade from their headquarters called Lamartine Hall on 8th Avenue and 29th Street. The parade celebrated the anniversary of the victory of King William II, the Prince of Orange, over James II at the Battle of Boyne. The cause for a celebration was not shared by New York's Irish Catholics. Approximately 5,000 National Guardsmen and 1,500 policemen accompanied the marchers, but 8th Avenue around 23rd Street filled with hundreds of Catholics. Bricks and rocks were hurled at the marchers. The militia responded with gunfire, and the police charged the mobs with their batons. The New York Sun interviewed Schmidt and reported that 
just previous to the firing by the troops, he saw a man with a red mustache who fired a gun from atop an awning at 298th Avenue. Before it was over, 60 civilians and three National Guardsmen were dead. Nearly two dozen policemen were injured, four of whom were shot, and about 150 others were wounded. By 1886, when the Alaska Club held its meetings here, a fourth floor had been added, where, most likely, three dormers had stood, were squat windows with prominent keystone lentils under a Victorian cornice. The building had been extended a few feet to the north, where a passageway once separated it from 292, where John Schmidt had lived, throwing it visually off balance. When police captain Schultz took over the 20th Street Station House in 1891, number 290 was home to Herman's Concert Saloon. The proprietor, named McLaughlin, ran a gambling house here. Schultz not only allowed the illegal club to operate, he openly joined in. A Senate group called the Luxow Investigating Committee was formed to look into corruption, including Schultz's indiscretions. An employee of McLaughlin testified that the proprietor ran a faro bank, it was a brace game, he also ran a red and black game, a roulette wheel, and a sweat game. And I have no idea what those are except for faro, which is a card game. And uh, by the way, uh, 26th Street was known as uh, Gambling Row and uh, many faro houses, as they were called, along with uh, a, a lot of prostitution. When asked whether Captain Schultz was aware of the illegal activities, he said the captain was brought in and introduced all around. He asked all hands to take a drink. He was a nice social fellow and spent money freely. Schultz's troubles had come about when he went on vacation in 1893 and left Sergeant Coffey in charge as acting captain. Coffey discovered the gambling operation and ordered it shut down. All the equipment was moved next door to 292 in secret where it continued to operate. Captain Schultz no doubt regretted his decision to put Coffey in charge as he sat in the Senate hearing room. Although the gambling house moved on, the saloon stayed in business and was run by Otto Arendt until 1898. Then there were changes made. Miss Mary Agnew leased the building from Fanny Crawford and opened the 8th Avenue Mission. She was soon joined in her work by the English-born Sarah Ray. The mission was non-denominational and was open 365 days a year for a gospel service, preceded by an open-air meeting. The indefatigable women also ran a Sunday school every Sunday. The 1912 Directory of Social and Health Agencies of New York City added that a trained nurse ministers to the sick poor. Workers visit the homes relieving cases of distress and caring for the temporal and spiritual need of the neighborhood. On November 17, 1947, almost a half a century later, Sarah Ray finally retired from the mission, which despite being totally dependent on private donations, was still firmly ensconced at number 298th Avenue. After the mission moved out, the building suffered a period of neglect before briefly being home to Rome, a gay bar. The thing about Rome was that Rome was remodeled with a very large, oversized marble bar. And it was something like uh, putting large oversized furniture that you would put in a uh, suburban home into a walk-up. It was uh, inappropriate for the dimensions and it looked awkward. Then in 2003, the one-time saloon and Christian mission experienced an astonishing makeover. As the vintage Biltmore Hotel near Grand Central Terminal was being demolished, interiors were salvaged and some were installed there.
Passing through great wrought iron gates outside, the patron found himself surrounded by marble panels, bronze ornamentation, and Versailles-type mirrors. Now, the Biltmore Room was a high-end, high-priced restaurant run by Chef Gary Robbins. By 2009, the space was taken over by Danny Kane, who converted it into a dual-purpose venue, an upscale restaurant during dinner hours, transforming into a nightclub at night. The ambitious project did not last, however, and the chunky little off-center building with its rich and intriguing history sat vacant behind its ornate entrance gates. It became the second location of Lombardi's, the very first pizzeria in the United States, and uh, Lombardi's has, unfortunately, due to the pandemic, closed for the time being, although they may well resume. I have long been stumped at just what could possibly be the reason so many nutty things go on there. The corner of 24th and 8th itself is unusual for Manhattan because the tallest structure on the corner is two stories, two buildings are one story, and there is a grassy lawn in front of one of the penthouses, a neighborhood development. The northeast corner is a Rite Aid drugstore, but in my experience had previously been a bank branch. I have long maintained that it has to lie on a geomagnetic intersection or fault line or something that propels people and their frontal lobes into the arena of utter nutsy cuckoo-ness. I have witnessed some unexplainably odd behavior both in and out of the store. One day, a homeless guy who I have never interacted with suddenly announced as I approached the store that I am the reason he doesn't tell people he is homeless. I remain unengaged although I had the urge to explain that by making that statement, he was confirming what most other locals already assumed was true, especially considering the fact that he spent much of the day, most days, kneeling on the corner with a cardboard, handwritten sign begging for donations. The Rite Aid is well lit both inside and out at night. One evening, outside the store, under bright, clear lighting, a young working girl, with poor perception skills, let's say, made herself available to me, and I was, to say the least, bemused. Inside is another story, nutty as a fruitcake. Part of the reason I occasionally visit is the entertainment value of seeing people depart from reality and get into distracting, protracted, long-winded arguments, mysterious absences from posts as checkout clerks, along with histrionic displays by those who went to the premises, ostensibly to shop, however, that is often not the case, whether that is the intention or not. Now, I have to say at this point that many of the customers are senior citizens, and many of them are obviously not in the best of health, hence the need to visit the pharmacy, and they don't get out of the house as easily or as often as they used to, so they tend to get dressed and make a jaunt of it. Many elderly ladies and gentlemen have stood online with me in an effort to purchase and leave without incident. <laughs> oh, my God. Other people who come into the store seem to believe that they are viewing a sporting event at Madison Square Garden just a few blocks uptown, and their volume control is non-existent. Still, others remain dedicated to attempt shoplifting, although there are plainclothes security guards on site at all times, and this is a given. There has also been a history of peculiar employees, to put it as tactfully as possible. I must also say that I have seen a turnover rate like nobody's business. So whoever staff member I may be referring to is very likely a past employee. 
There was one odd fellow who felt the need to engage in loud arguments over trifling inconsequential non-issues with at least half of the people who just wanted to buy what they had been toting around the place as they shopped and then leave. Well, that wasn't going to happen on his watch. One employee shouted out to me that a vending machine I was in the midst of using was out of order when it was not, and then repeatedly lied to me, told me he was the manager when he clearly was not, and asked me to come back tomorrow over something that was easily remedied by the manager on duty, who was a very pleasant professional young lady who quickly corrected an errant machinery issue. There was absolutely no reasonable rationale for shouting that to me, nor to lie repeatedly, nor to claim that he was the manager. Just none. But that is a mere drop in the bucket. One employee who worked in the pharmacy attempted to become intimate with me in the aisle one afternoon, and I had no idea he was going to do so. One employee who was working the checkout by herself on a busy day before self-checkout was the norm, and who was a very sweet, pleasant lady, decided to answer the telephone during a checkout transaction and engage in conversation while people just stood there becoming irate, something she did not detect. She was also prone to becoming absentmindedly lost in thought as she admired the labels and products that were being purchased and had a faraway look in her eyes, as though she was visiting a tropical resort in her mind. Now, the elderly people quite often require a bit of special attention because they are vulnerable, they can't stand for too long, and they made an entire life by being reasonable civil citizens and did not need to become excited or agitated or upset. They were on medication and required to regulate blood pressure and their heart health and so on. They were many people's grandmas and grandpas. They deserve to be treated kindly, as all folks who make it to that time of their lives do, as we all do our entire lives, I might add particularly at that time of their life. This was not going to happen. Staff would frequently leave their posts in the middle of checking out customers' purchases for whatever reason, instead of just completing the transaction or transactions and then go off and do what they felt they needed to do. I would see elderly men become apoplectic and loudly ask, Now where are you going? Because staff could not go from point A to point B without a breakdown. Now, this was not just a one-off experience. Every single time I entered the premises for a long time, I felt as if I should hear playing in the background. There was always a number of people with those old lady shopping carts who need to buy large quantities of stuff and bicker over each and every item's price, quality, and appearance with the staff further prolonging the wait and frustrating those who wish to purchase whatever they came in for, for convenience sake. But no. I have also amazingly stood facing the refrigerator section and one of the most well-known sexy rock stars in the world strolled in just a few feet away from me, walked right up to the dairy case, took out a can of ready whipped whipped cream, then paid and left. He caused a lot of heads to turn and say, well, that was interesting. And I have always said that there was something to this location. To quote the Danish prince, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And I thought there might be something to the concept of ley lines, because this place is just too weird, which is apparently a fabrication that has been unquestioned by those who want to believe in paranormal phenomena and has been wildly popularized by Ghostbusters and their fans as well.
but it is just one of the quirkiest, nutsiest aspects of living here in New York City. It's a confounding experience in Toto, but that's what makes the world go around. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And as the kitties say, peace out.